First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you turn with me to Acts chapter 28. Acts 28. You know, we started our study of the book of Acts the week after Easter last year in 2020. And now we have made it to the final chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, this is the penultimate week in this series. Uh, after today, we'll only have uh, the last two verses of the book of Acts, which we'll talk about uh, next week. Uh, but let's pray uh, before we go any, any further today. Father, we come before you now and we thank you for your holy word that is before us, that has just been read for us. Father, we pray that in these moments you might... Uh, clear away every distraction. Father, you might help us to have ears that are open to hear from you. Would you change us by the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know that uh, there is not a whole lot worth watching on TV when you find yourself watching old reruns of This Old House, uh, which my wife and I found ourselves doing uh, some time back. And on this particular episode of This Old House, they were doing a restoration project of a historic home in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, as a part of uh, restoring this home, they had to construct a new, uh, very elaborate uh, wrought iron gate that uh, was there in the alleyway beside the home. And they needed to, to make it to kind of match the style of all the other gates uh, that were in that part of the historic district of the city. And so they went to a school that was uh, really a, a blacksmithing shop. And there were students there learning that trade. And they had been commissioned by the homeowner to build uh, this beautiful gate for their home. And so as a part of the show, they watched these students. They were taking the iron and uh, putting it into the fire, of course, heating it up, uh, laying it on the anvil, and then beginning to strike it and to bend it and, and to shape it. And then they used that expression, which actually comes from the blacksmith shop, an expression that I'm sure you're familiar with, right? If you know it, say it with me, right? You have to strike while the iron is hot, right? Strike while the iron is hot. If you wait till it's cool, there's, there's no time left to be able to shape it and bend it. There's a, a window of time that you have to be able to work without iron. There's several other expressions that people use to try to drive home that same point, right? Sometimes people will say, you know, carpe diem or seize the day. Or maybe if you grew up on a farm, you might say, uh, you know, you need to make hay while the sun shines, all, all of these expressions really are getting at the same idea, and really it's a biblical idea. It's an idea we find in Colossians, we find elsewhere in God's Word, that we don't have as much time as we think we do. That time is fleeting, and we need to make the most of every opportunity that God gives us to make an impact for Him. And certainly here in Acts 28 and really in, in the whole story of Paul, since the day of his conversion back in Acts chapter 9, Paul has been doing that. Paul has been making the most of every opportunity that God gave him. And we see that in this chapter as well. It, it doesn't matter whether Paul is, is on an island or whether Paul is in the capital city of the Roman Empire, right? It doesn't matter whether he's speaking to uneducated barbarians or whether he's speaking to the religious 
religious elite. It, it doesn't matter whether he has a snake hanging from his hand or whether he is shackled to a Roman soldier by the wrist, right? Paul was going to live for Christ. Paul was going to make Christ known with every opportunity that he was given. And I don't know about you, but I want to live more and more like that. More and more making the most of the opportunities that God gives me. Here's the commitment that I would pray by God's grace that you and I would make today. That we would even leave this place today saying something like this. That we would say, wherever my adventure with God takes me, I am committed to make the most of every opportunity to live for Christ and to make him known. Wherever my adventure with God takes me, I'm committed to make the most of every opportunity to live for Christ and to make him known. As we learn from Paul's example in this story, I see at least three ways that Paul lived out or fleshed out that commitment to make the most of every opportunity. These three ways, of course, are ways that we're also called to live that commitment out. And here's, here's the first way. It's by being committed to build bridges for the gospel. Being committed to build bridges for the gospel. That's what we see Paul doing, uh, especially during the three months that he spent on the island of Malta in verses 1 through 10. Uh, if you were with us last week, you'll recall that Paul made his appeal to stand before Caesar, and the time came for him to set sail to Rome. But the ship that he ended up getting on uh, ended up experiencing a terribly frightening storm. It drove them up and down the Adriatic Sea for 14 days. They didn't see the sun, didn't see the stars, didn't know where they were. But God sent an angel to Paul to reassure him that he was going to live to make it to Rome. He was going to testify about Christ in Rome. God said, not only is your life going to be saved, but the life of everybody on board this ship is going to be saved. And sure enough, just as God promised, the ship ran aground on a sandbar just off of an island, and everyone was able to either swim to shore or float to shore. And again, just as God promised, all 276 passengers on board that boat made it safely to land. Now it says in verse 1 of chapter 28 that the sailors uh, didn't know that the island was Malta until they got to shore and found out the island's name. I'm sure that many of these sailors had been to Malta before, but probably to the main harbor. Uh, they did not recognize this part of the shoreline uh, that, as I said last week, is now called St. Paul's Bay because of this incident, incident that happened in that location. Malta is a small island. It's only about 17 miles long and nine miles wide. It had been a Roman colony for more than 200 years, but way before that, uh, it was populated by the Phoenicians, and the people still spoke a Phoenician dialect in Paul's day. Uh, that's why in verse 2, Luke uses the word barbarian to describe the natives on the island. Uh, in our text, it's translated as natives, but it's the Greek word for barbarian. But he doesn't mean that as an insult. He simply means that as these are folks who have not been educated in speaking Greek. They speak their own language. Certainly, they were not barbaric at all in the way that they treated Paul and the other passengers 
from the ship. You know, when you wash ashore on a remote island and some natives start to come out towards you, uh, you don't really know how that's going to work out for you, do you, right? Especially if they look hungry, right, when they see you, right? Thankfully, these were not those kind of natives, and, and in fact, they were very kind. Luke says they were unusually kind to all of the passengers on the ship. They knew they were cold and shivering and wet, and so they uh, kindled a fire to help keep them warm. Uh, Paul uh, tried to help out, which really just shows his uh, character. Went to go pick up some sticks to add to the fire. There was no job that was beneath the Apostle Paul. As many people have said, it's only a small man who will not do a small job. And Paul was no small man. And so he went to pick up these sticks, but apparently he picked up at least one stick that wasn't actually a stick. And when he threw it in the fire, that stick woke up and a snake uh, chomped down on his hand and was hanging there from his hand by its fangs. Uh, This poor guy, right? Think about the Apostle Paul and everything that he had been through, right? He had been in uh, custody for two years now for not doing anything other than talking about Jesus. He gets on the worst boat ride ever, right? Goes through a storm for 14 uh, days, ends up being shipwrecked. He just washed ashore on an island. He's probably about to sit down for the first time in two weeks and rest for a minute by the fire, but instead he has a viper hanging from his hand. Uh, we, we would say that, uh, you know, he just can't buy a break, or we might say he is snake bit, right, literally speaking. But of course, as believers, we don't believe in luck, do we? We know that God's providence superintends all things, big and small, even snake bites. And God was going to use this snake bite that uh, happened to Paul and open a door for a gospel witness. You know, the story of how these natives respond to Paul's snakebite in verses 4 through 6 is really pretty comical. First, they, they look at this guy who barely survived a shipwreck, and he's got a snake hanging from his hand, and they think to themselves, and they're fairly superstitious in their beliefs, and they think, well, obviously what's happened here is this guy is like a heinous murderer, right? He is a super bad criminal, and, uh, you know, the goddess justice, when it has the word justice there, it's really speaking about the goddess of justice, one of the many gods and goddesses that they worship. This goddess is pursuing this man, and even though he barely survived the storm, now justice has found another way to take him down through this snake bite because of the terrible things that he has done. And even after Paul shook the snake off into the fire and seemed like he was okay, they still didn't think he was going to be okay. Uh, They thought, you know, just give it a minute. You know, this same thing happened to my Aunt Sally, right? And uh, that sounds like a good native name, right? Aunt Sally, right? So Aunt Sally, she had a snake bite. If you just give it time, he's about to swell up. He's about to fall over dead. Get some popcorn. Let's watch this guy die, right? And and then it, it, it literally says that they just stared at him probably for hours. Right? You can imagine how creepy that would be, right? All the natives are just looking at him, just waiting for him to, to keel over, drop down dead. But to their great disappointment, it never happened. And so finally, they had to account for the fact that he had survived the snake bite. They needed to come up with an explanation for how what happened to Aunt Sally, right? And everybody else they knew that ever got bit by that kind of snake did not happen to the Apostle Paul. And so Luke tells us that the natives changed their mind and said, well, obviously he must be a god. Uh, This is the only way that he could have survived something that would have killed any mere mortal. 
And as strange as it may seem, this isn't actually the first time this has happened to Paul in the book of Acts. You might remember back in Acts chapter 14, when he and Barnabas went to Lystra, they thought they were gods there, right? They thought that Paul was the god Hermes and that Barnabas was the god Zeus. And they were actually about to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And he had to say no and stop them and say, we're not gods. And then he began to tell them about the one true God and his son Jesus Christ. And even though it's not recorded here because of how quickly Luke tells the story, there is little doubt that Paul did the same thing on the island of Malta. It would go against the portrayal of Paul we've seen all the way throughout this book to think that he would not have corrected them and pointed them to the Lord. As it turns out, the snake bite would not be his only opportunity to do that during his time on the island of Malta. In verses 7 through 10, Luke tells us about something else that happened during that three months that they spent the winter time on the island of Malta. In verse 7, we're introduced to the leading man of the island, the governor of the island, a man named Publius. And he invites uh, not only Paul, but presumably all 276 of the passengers on the ship to his estate. He entertains them, feeds them, shows them great uh, hospitality. But during those three days, there is a window of opportunity for Paul to minister to this unbelieving man's family. Because in verse 8, we learn that Publius's father was sick. He had a fever and dysentery. The description that is given here fits with something that we uh, have historically called Malta fever because it was a disease that was so common on the island of Malta. In the 19th century, it was learned that this malady was due to a microbe that was found in the goat's milk that they consumed. And so Paul went to Publius's father and he prayed for him and laid hands on him. And by God's power, he was healed. As you can imagine, word of that healing spread all over the island. It was very similar to what happened in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And word of that spread all over the area. And everyone brought their sick to Jesus to be healed. The same thing happened here. Every sick person on the island was brought to Paul. And he laid his hands on them. And by God's grace and power, they were healed. Once again, Luke doesn't specifically mention it here, but again, all the way throughout the book of Acts, miracles are never done just for the sake of miracles. Miracles are done to authenticate the messenger who has brought God's message. As one commentator said, it is inconceivable to think that Paul did not follow these miracles with a word about Christ during the three months that he spent on the island of Malta. What Paul did there is what we are called to do. It's to build bridges to the lost so that we might be able to share the gospel. And before we move to the next part of this story, there's two bridges that I see here in this text that uh, are also opportunities for us today to make those bridges of the gospel. The first is the bridge of hospitality. The bridge of hospitality. Hospitality, I believe, is one of the greatest ways today that we can build bridges with our lost friends, with our lost neighbors. Now, normally, when we think about hospitality, we think about we as believers reaching out to our unbelieving friends, reaching out to our unbelieving neighbors, inviting them over to our home. What we actually see in this text, though, is on two occasions, it's actually the opposite that happens. 
right? It is unbelievers who are reaching out to Paul and to all the passengers on the ship and showing them hospitality, right? They did it when they first got to the island and they made that fire for them. Uh, Publius did it when he invited them all to his house for those three days. And so in this instance, it's the unbelievers who are showing hospitality. And we won't spend long here, but I just want you to notice what Paul doesn't do, right? Paul doesn't say, well, there's no way I can go to that guy's house. There's no way I can spend time with him. There's no way I can be with with those kind of people who don't believe in the Lord, who have all these kind of superstitious beliefs. I can't go there. I can't do that. That may have been what the Pharisees would have done, but it's not what Paul did. And by the way, it's not what Jesus did, who was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's important when unbelievers reach out and show kindness and graciousness and hospitality to us as believers that we receive that hospitality. Receiving it is just as important as showing it ourselves. And it's a way to build a bridge to those who don't know Christ. You know, a second way to build a bridge is simply to show loving care to people. I see Paul showing that loving care when he was in Publius's home. There's no record that Publius or anybody else invited Paul to meet with his father. Now, he may have done that. The text doesn't say that. The text just says he heard about that he was sick. He went to him. He laid hands on him, and he prayed for him. And through the Lord's power, he was healed. You know, we as believers should be known for our love and for our care. Uh, There's uh, the old song that says, they will know that we are Christians by our love. And so friend, how has the Lord called you to love an unbeliever who is around you right now in your life? What way can you show care and concern for them? How can you serve them? How can you minister to them? I think sometimes we are so wrapped up, even as believers with our own schedule, sometimes even our own church schedules, that we can walk right by opportunities that God has given us to show loving care to people who don't know him. And sometimes that is the bridge that God would have us build, just to simply love and care for someone who doesn't know Christ. Well, Paul was only on the island, as I mentioned, for three months as they waited for the winter to be over, for it to be safe for them to sail again. But verse 10 gives a hint of the kind of impact that Paul had during his brief time on the island among these natives. We're not told how many uh, put their faith in Christ. Doubtless some did. Church tradition says that a church began on the island of Malta following the Apostle Paul's visit. But in verse 10, Luke relays that Paul was sent off really more like a celebrity than he was like a prisoner. It says they came to us and they showed great favor to us and they supplied us with honor in many ways. They provided for the necessities of Paul and all the other passengers for the remainder of their voyage. After wintering on the island, it was probably somewhere between mid-February and early March that they would have set sail for the next part of their journey up to Rome. Uh, Verse 11 tells us that they got on board another large Alexandrian grain ship, much like the one that they had just shipwrecked on. This one had, just as they had, spent the winter harbored uh, at the island of Malta. It was named for a figurehead on its bow of the twin brothers. And those twin brothers are the twin sons of 
the Greek god Zeus, Castor, and Pollux, who in Greek mythology were thought to protect sailors who were at sea. But if you've been reading this story, uh, you know that it wasn't the twin brothers or anybody else who protected Paul, but it was the one true God of heaven and earth who protected Paul, who brought him this far and had promised to bring Paul safely to Rome and he would do just that. Luke very quickly actually tells the remainder of the story of this voyage, starting in verse 12. We have a map here that kind of shows some of the places where they went. You can see the journey they had already taken and how they got lost in the storm and ended on that island of Malta there that is just there south of Sicily. They left the island of Malta, and the first stop was there in the city of Syracuse on Sicily. From there, they sailed up to Regium, which is there at the very tip of the Italian peninsula. They waited a day for the right winds to be able to sail through the strait that separated Sicily from Italy. And then they sailed up the western coast of Italy until they came the 175 miles to the major port city of Puteoli. Uh, While cargo is typically carried further north, people who were traveling to Rome uh, typically were dropped off at Puteoli and then they would finish the remainder of their journey to Rome on foot, which is what Paul and the other passengers did. Uh, Apparently, the Roman centurion Julius, who had guard over Paul and the other prisoners, had some matters to attend to in Puteoli, and so they ended up spending seven days there in that city. During that seven days, Paul was given the freedom and the opportunity to go and visit with some of his Christian believers who were there in that city. This is how Luke puts it in verse 14. After we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went towards Rome. We talked about one of the ways that we are to live out that commitment, to make the most of every opportunity. That's by building bridges for the gospel. But here's another way we need to live out that commitment. We need to bless our brothers and our sisters in the gospel. As much as we talk about what an amazing servant of Christ Paul was, and he certainly was, one of the themes that we've seen over and over again in the book of Acts is that Paul did not do his ministry alone. Uh, Paul hadn't even done this journey so far alone, right? Luke was with him, Aristarchus was with him. And now how it must have thrilled Paul's heart to get off that ship in this Italian city of Puteoli that he had never been there before. And, and who does he meet but some brethren, right? Some believers, some brothers and sisters in Christ. He was able to spend the next seven days with them. He was able to worship with them. He was able to pray with them. He was able to study the scriptures with them, that they were able to encourage one another during this seven days of his journey. And we don't know if Paul knew any of them personally, We know in his letter to the Romans that he had written a few years before this, he knew some of the believers in Rome personally, so perhaps he did. But it is certain that they knew of the Apostle Paul. They had read by now his letter he had written to the Romans three years before. And they show Paul kindness and hospitality during that seven days they spent together. Now, if that was the only Christian contact Paul had had on his journey to Rome, that would have been wonderful enough, but it isn't. Look at what Luke says in verse 15. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, now that's the believers who lived up in Rome. They came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three ends. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. 
Apparently, some believers from Puteoli went up to the city of Rome and told them that Paul was on his way to Rome, and they left immediately, it seems, to meet Paul along the journey. You know, when Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, he told them how he longed to be able to see them one day, how he longed to impart to them a spiritual gift. He wanted to be able to help solidify them and establish them in their faith. He wanted them to be able to encourage one another in their mutual faith. And apparently some of these believers in Rome wanted to get the jump start on that encouragement. They wanted to go out to meet Paul and encourage him. And notice how far they walked to do that, some of them walk 33 miles down the road from Rome to the city of three taverns. Some of them walk 10 miles further than that, 43 miles from the city of Rome to the forum or the marketplace of Appius. Then they walked with Paul all the way back the way they came. So altogether, they walked 80 plus miles in order to keep Paul company, in order to welcome him and walk with him, even though he was a Roman prisoner. And you can only imagine how much comfort, how much joy that brought to Paul's heart. And Luke points that out in verse 15. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. As one person put it, it's almost as if Paul was given his own triumphal entry into the city. And I'm sure that everybody who traveled along with Paul was amazed at the turnout of all of his friends who came out to meet him. God has called us to live a life on mission. He's called us to build bridges to the gospel But we are not called to do that alone. I love what Noah shared earlier in his testimony. Yeah, we're called to go now, but we're not called to go alone. We're called to go together. God in his providence has put us in the same trench with other brothers and sisters on this battlefield. And part of making the most of every opportunity is making the most of every opportunity to encourage the brothers and sisters who are beside us. Moses was an incredible leader who had a strong faith in God. And yet there was a time in Moses' life in the middle of the battle where he had to have two friends to hold up his arms while he sat down on a rock. Paul, at this critical moment in his life, needed someone to encourage him. And so, friend, what brother, what sister in your life is God calling you to encourage? Is God calling you, maybe even this week, to build them up, to tell them that their labor is not in vain in the Lord, to tell them to keep on going, to keep on serving. And there are so many practical ways that we can do that, right? We can do that with a call. We can do that with a text. We can do that with a visit. We can do that with a meal. We can do that with an invitation. We can do that with a gift. We can do that with a kind word. We can do that with a scripture. There's a thousand ways that we can do that. I don't think it matters so much how we do that. I think it just matters that we do that, that we bless our brothers and our sisters in Christ just as they bless the Apostle Paul here in this text. We've seen two of the ways that we are to flesh out that commitment to make the most of every opportunity. We do that by building bridges to the lost. We do that by blessing our brothers. Here's number three. We do that by being a bondservant of the gospel. You know, if we are really going to make the most of every opportunity to make Christ known, I think it really comes down to our identity. 
Do we see ourselves the way Paul saw himself? As a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I believe that's where it has to start. Paul was walking to Rome in verse 16. He actually makes it to Rome. You know, in many ways, this is the climax. This is the culmination of the entire book of Acts as Paul has been heading this direction. All the way back in Acts chapter one, verse eight, we read, Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. And now here we are at the end of the book and Paul has made it to the ends of the earth as his witness. Look at verse 16 with me. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Again, by this time, Paul is a prisoner. He's been a prisoner now for two years. Now, he is not placed inside of a dungeon or a prison cell. Apparently, the Romans did not think he was too big of a threat or that the charges against him had very much substance to them. And so they allowed him to be in his own rented house, to have some freedom and liberty. But he also had one Roman soldier at all times that was assigned to him. And we know that that soldier would have rotated every four hours. They would have been chained to his wrist, and every four hours he would have gotten another one. But three years before this, when Paul wrote the letter that we know as Romans, he was not in custody, physical custody at that time. But this is how he introduced himself to the Romans three years before. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Before Paul was in chains, literal chains, physical chains, he already saw himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He knew that his life belonged to the Lord who had redeemed him, that his life was not his own, that whatever situation he was in, he was to make the most of that opportunity, even if he had four hours with somebody shackled to his wrist. You know, during the next two years, as he was in this rented house, people came to him. Those guards were changed every four hours throughout that two years. Imagine all the people that were chained up next to Paul. Can you imagine being chained up next to Paul for four hours? Well, during that two years, he wrote what we refer to as his prison letters or his prison epistles, one of which was his letter to the Philippians. And in that letter, he talked about the ministry he had to the soldiers who were chained to him. Look at what it says in Philippians chapter 1. He says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, that's the soldiers, and all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Again, if you imagine being one of those men chained up next to Paul for four hours, I'm sure some of them thought, well, this is a strange bird. and He has some, some strange ideas, but I'm sure there were some others. As they listened to Paul share, the Lord spoke to their heart and their lives were changed. I, I, I bet by the end of that two years, there were some of those men who were asking to swap out prisoner duty. So they might be able to spend a few more hours chained up next to Paul. You know, when you think about making the most of every opportunity, I don't know that there's a clearer example than this. Paul sharing with the people who are shackled to his wrist. But in addition to that, Paul wanted to waste no time in sharing with the Jewish people in the city of Rome as well. 
And so he only waits three days to get settled in before he calls for them. That's really what verses 17 through 29 are all about. He sends for the leaders, the elders of the Jewish synagogues that were in the city of Rome. Of course, he could not physically go to the synagogues as he had previously done in his missionary trips. And so he does the best thing he can. He invites them to come to him. And in verses 17 through 20, it's kind of his opening statement to these uh, Jewish leaders. He basically wants to say to them, listen, I don't know what you already have heard about me, but I just want you to know I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty of anything against the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the Jewish customs. He tells them that he had been handed over to the Roman authorities and uh, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem put so much pressure on them that they kept him in custody, even though they wanted to set him free. They knew he was guilty of no crime and did not deserve imprisonment. And, and then he tells them in verse 19, listen, when I appealed to Caesar, it wasn't so I could come here and kind of blast the Jewish people. I, I'm not putting up a, you know, a countersuit against the Jewish leaders or anything of that sort. I, I haven't come here to damage the Jewish people. I've come here to share a message of hope with the Jewish people. And in verse 20, he doesn't give them the full gospel here, but he, he gives them a little tease, right, of what is coming. He says, if you really want to know why, what I'm about, if you really want to know why I'm here, I am here because of the hope of Israel. And the hope of Israel was the coming of the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead. And they respond to Paul by saying, listen, Paul, we haven't gotten anything about you. We haven't gotten any letters from Jerusalem or anywhere else. We haven't heard anything about you, good or bad. We have heard about these Christians, though. This sect is what they refer to the Christians as. And what we've heard about them hasn't been good but we want to hear more from you. That was really Paul's whole goal with this first conversation was to be able to gain a hearing to share more. And so in verse 23, this is what we read. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. Verse 24, some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. As one person put it, this wasn't like a, a one hour little Bible study followed by juice and, and cookies, right? This, this was an all day affair. He taught for 10 to 12 hours from morning until night, persuading them, I'm sure at times debating with them. And his text was Moses and the prophets. In other words, what we would call the whole Old Testament was his text. And he persuaded them from those scriptures, many we've seen in our study of the book of Acts that Jesus is the coming king, that Jesus was the Messiah that they were promised to look for. He told them, I'm sure, about the heart of the gospel, how Jesus died for their sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day, and he's able to offer them life and forgiveness and salvation if they would turn in faith to him. The text says, just like happened in some other cities throughout the book of Acts, some believed some did not. In fact, what the text says is some would not believe, that they refused to believe. And so as they argued amongst themselves about what they had just heard from Paul, in verses 26 and 27, Paul gives them one kind of final word that, that is a strong word of rebuke and correction from God. He actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Paul said the Holy Spirit was right when he said through Isaiah to your fathers this. And the implication is like father, like son. 
right? In the same way the Spirit of God said this about your fathers, the Spirit of God is now saying this about you, that you have eyes, but you don't really see. And you have ears, but you don't really hear because your heart is dull, your heart is hard, and you are not hearing the truth of the things of God. You know, it's been said, there is no one so blind as the one who will not see. There is no one so deaf as the one who will not hear. You might recall that Jesus quoted this same exact passage from Isaiah 6 in Matthew 13 when he talked about the parable of the soils and the different kind of hearts that people have as we listen to his message. If that didn't anger them enough, then Paul said this in verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And this does not mean that Paul refused to share the good news of Jesus with another Jewish person in Rome. Of course, it doesn't mean that. Of course, it does not mean that we should not share with Jewish folks that we meet. In fact, in verses 30 and 31, it it said that for the next two years, he received everyone who came to him, Jew and Gentile alike. And yet, this statement coming as it does at the end of the book of Acts, as, as one put it, there is a certain solemn finality to what Paul says here. Now, we know that one day in the future, God's word tells us there will be a great turning of ethnic Jewish people to the Lord and to his Christ. But throughout the history of the church so far, throughout the last 2,000 years, the gospel has primarily advanced among Gentile peoples of every tribe and every tongue. Paul said the message of Jesus would go to the Gentiles and they would hear it. And for 2,000 years and counting, they have. But again, here in Acts 28, whether it was pleading with the Jewish people all day long to believe in Christ, whether it was sharing with the Roman soldier that was shackled to his wrist every four hours, Paul took every opportunity he had to talk about Christ. And I have to be honest, there are times in my life where I failed to do that. There are times in my life where I, I leave a conversation and I think, man, how did I miss that opportunity? How did, I, how did I leave that conversation and I said this instead of saying that? Right? Does anybody ever think about things like that when you walk away from a conversation? I think part of it comes back, like we've been talking about, to our identity. What would change in your life? What would change in my life if we truly saw ourselves like Paul saw himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ? That every day we would wake up and say, I am a bondservant of Christ. Today, God, help me to see the opportunities that, that you put in front of me because my life belongs to you. And I want to be faithful as your bondservant every day of this journey, every day of this adventure that you give me until I see you face to face. Remember the commitment we talked about at the very beginning. I want us to put that up on the screen again. Look at these words. Wherever my adventure with God takes me, I am committed to make the most of every opportunity to live for Christ and to make him known. If you're a follower of Christ, if you know Christ in a personal way, just for the next few minutes, even as we begin to sing and worship, I just want you to think about, think about that. 
And think about how God is calling you right now to make the most of the opportunities maybe he's put in front of you right now in your life. Maybe there are some, though, who are here today that haven't yet surrendered their heart and their life to Christ. You know, before you can make the most of every opportunity to share about Christ, you have to make the most of the opportunity to believe in Christ, right? to put your faith in Christ for the very first time. And if you're here today, that opportunity is right in front of you today. Today is that day of salvation where you've heard about how much Jesus loves you. You've heard about how he died for your sin and for mine. You've heard about how he rose again on the third day, how he offers life to you who would call on his name. And you have the opportunity right now to lift your voice up to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, save me, come into my heart. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for you. I want to follow you on this adventure that you have planned for me. I want to ask you to stand right now and we're about to sing a song, but if God is speaking to you and and you sense that he's knocking at that door of your heart and you want to open that door, you want to say yes to him, I want to invite you to come right now and share that with me or one of the other pastors that you'll see here at the front and just say, I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to take the opportunity right now today to meet him. And again, maybe you already know Christ, but he's just speaking to you about that idea of making the most of every opportunity. And maybe you know, I haven't been doing that. I've just kind of been coasting. I've been going through the motions like this song talks about. I don't want to do that anymore. Maybe you just want to come and kneel here at the altar and just ask for his strength. Maybe there's a specific opportunity you're thinking about right now, a specific person he's put on your heart that you know he's leading you to share with. And maybe you're scared to do it just to come and pray and say, God, give me the strength, give me the courage, give me the grace, help me to know when and how and where. And just come and spend a moment or two here with with the Lord. You come as we sing together.